Hi, everybody. My name is Larsine. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. And it's a real honor and a privilege to be here, and I want to thank Doug and the committee for asking me, and Mary and uh, Teeny for picking me up at the airport. We had a great time out here. You know, an Al-Anon named Teeny, you know, don't let the name deceive you. Uh, I knew right away, you know, do, do, not, do not piss this girl off. And, uh, and I worked hard not to, but I accidentally moved to the front row to hear my friend Scott, and now I'm in trouble, so I want to tell her I'm sorry right now. It's really fun to be here. I've had the privilege of uh, uh, sharing the, uh, being on the same program with Scott, you know, on, on a lot of different occasions. And, you know, every time I hear Scott speak, you know, afterwards, I have such admiration for his wife, Nancy. I mean, I <laughs> You know, I know we're not supposed to have heroes, but if, uh, if we have them in Al-Anon, Nancy is one. I mean... The woman's program, you have to admire someone who can stay married to this guy for 26 years. When I was coming down in the elevator, a lady, I'm all dressed and obviously, you know, surprise, who's the speaker? And, uh, and she said to me, are you Scott's wife? You know, and I said, no, if I was Scott's wife, you'd have two different speakers because we'd both be dead. And, uh, <laughs> and that's the way that goes. Uh, <laughs> And one thing you learn in Al-Anon is you get to find out who you are. You get to find out who you are, and I'm, and I'm really, really grateful for that. And it's, and it's fun to be in Iowa. I love being outside. Uh, um, even though I came from California and it was really warm and it's really cold here, I still wore my really cute California little sandals last night just because and uh, <laughs> to show I could do it. We're sick people, what can I tell you? And uh, I made amends to my toes when I got up to the room. And <laughs> And everybody's better now. But anyway, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like for me today. I'm the oldest of four kids. My dad was a master sergeant in the Army, so that made me the automatic corporal of my family. Uh, my husband jokes that I came out of the womb carrying a clipboard and wearing an armband. And uh, <laughs> he's not too far off the mark, you know. Um, ever since I can remember, when I was in school, I was always room monitor, cafeteria monitor, playground monitor. And why? Because if you do something wrong, I will write your name down and report you. I don't care if you're in the sixth grade or whatever. If you're doing something wrong, by God, somebody's going to know about it. And, you know, I don't know. What can I say? It's a gift. And uh, it's for me anyway. And it's just the way I've been. And I don't know what it is about me, too, because I just seem to have this authoritative thing. Because, I mean, I'll be in a restaurant waiting to be seated. And people will come up to me and go, is it okay if we push these two tables together? I'm like, fine with me. Good idea, you know. I mean, if you want an answer and you ask me, I will give you one, whether I have any information to base that answer on or not. Because, you know... For me, this Al-Anon, I can't stand to void. If anybody's hesitating, my husband and I took ballroom dancing lessons. Huge mistake anyway. A lot of stupid rules in ballroom dancing. The guy leads. God, where did that come from? And because my husband wants to do the next right thing, he will hesitate. I, all I know is that everybody's watching us and we're not moving and dancing, you're supposed to be moving. And so I naturally take the lead and take us somewhere and it's always the wrong place. And uh, consequently, I was always being chastised by the teacher and my slow husband was always being uh, complimented by the teacher. And so we only took it for six weeks and we were done because he was better at it than I was. And uh, it was, it was an experience. But anyway, I grew up in this, in this home, and my, like I say, my dad was a master sergeant in the Army, and I had, you know, absolutely no idea that I grew up in an alcoholic home. All I know is my dad drank every day. 
You know, and if you grow up in an alcoholic home and you're born into something like that where there's just drinking that goes on every day and your dad gets drunk every day, you know, how do you know it's an alcoholic home? It wasn't an alcoholic home for me. It, it was it was a normal home for me because that's what normal was for me. And if you grow up in an alcoholic home, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, when I was very, very new in Al-Anon, I went to a lot of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And if you're new in Al-Anon and even if you're not, you know, that's one thing I cannot recommend enough for you to do. It says in our Al-Anon literature that we should learn all we can about the disease of alcoholism. And to me, there's no better place to learn that than in open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, when I was new in the program, I went to this meeting with my husband, and I remember the speaker that night, and for whatever reason, whether or not this is what he said or not, what I heard the speaker talk about that night was alcoholism, the family disease. And he described alcoholism in the home like having a rhinoceros in your living room, but everybody pretends it's a coffee table. And it was the absolute perfect description of the house that I grew up in. Because my mom could get to the part where she could always tell when my dad was ready to have one of his alcoholic explosions. And uh, and she could never say to us kids, okay, nobody talk, nobody do anything because your dad's ready to blow up. Because if she said that, of course, my dad would blow up. So my, you know, the first thing that goes out of any alcoholic home that I know of, the first tool that goes out the door is any form of verbal communication. That's the first thing to go. And, you know, and in my house, it was absolutely no different. And, uh, and so my mom didn't talk to us verbally, but she talked to us facially. You know, and, and if you grow up in an alcoholic home, you know, a lot of this, you know, this, there's meaning behind all that stuff. I mean, there is, it's the red giant flag. You don't need anybody to talk. You know, and my mom would make these faces at the dinner table and we would all know everybody looked down, nobody talked, nobody do anything. But if you've got an alcoholic who's pissed off and ready to blow, it's going to happen and nothing is going to prevent that. You know, and sure of us, you know, one of us would do some very minor infraction and scrape a knife on a plate or spill some milk and ba-boom, you know, and everybody would get hit and everybody would get a spanking and everybody would get sent to bed and everybody would be sniveling and crying in their bed. And this could be 5.30 in the afternoon and everybody's in bed, the kids, the dog, my mom, you know, we're all gone, you know. And, uh, and then you get up the next morning, you know, and you get up the courage to creep down the hallway and you walk in the kitchen and there's my dad at the breakfast table and it's good morning, what do you want for breakfast? And no one ever said, gee whiz, Dad, what was that about last night? Gee whiz, Dad, how come you had to hit everybody? Gee whiz, Dad, how come you had to throw dinner on the floor? Nobody said anything, because the rhinoceros goes back to being a coffee table. You just want it to be over, and you hope today will be different. You know, and that's just the perfect description of the house that I grew up in. I don't mean to make it sound any worse. You know, everybody has their own deal about how it was for them, and that's just how it was for me. But I remember taking on that responsibility at an early age. We were in the Army, and we moved a lot, and... Uh, and I remember one time when we were changing duty stations, my, there was like, you know, a three, four week thing before we could move into our house. So my dad sent my mom and my sisters and my brother and I to California to visit with my, uh, her family. And we were out here for three weeks and it was the most unusual thing in the world because we stayed with my aunt and my uncle and my uncle tickled the kids and sat down to dinner with them and everybody was happy and smiling and we went to Disneyland and just had an absolute ball. And I remember three weeks later getting off a plane in Chicago, knowing that my dad was waiting for me, knowing that he was, would be so happy to see us, and having that feeling in the pit of my stomach at eight years old that there was something wrong with me because I was afraid to get off the plane and I didn't want to go to him and hug him and do any of those kinds of things. You know, and again, it's the family disease of alcoholism, how we're all individually affected by somebody else's drinking. And, and, and the screwy part of it is you don't even know it. You don't even know that it's going on. And uh, when I was about uh, 14 years old, my dad got out of the Army, and we moved to California. Now, my history up until then had always been, uh, we'd always lived in military housing with other military families, a lot of discipline always going on all the time. 
So this was in the 60s. So you got to know what it's like moving from the East Coast in the Army to California in the 60s. was like, we've been better off going to Mars. I mean, it was just hippy-dippy, fun, wolfy. It was weird. There was not much discipline in California at all. And my dad absolutely hated being here, absolutely hated being here. But we still had a lot of rules and regulations in our house, and that didn't change. Uh, one of the big rules and regulations was um, dating. You know, you had to bring the guy home. My dad got to question him. You know, and uh, my dad was a master sergeant for a very long time. I don't, he could take, his voice alone could take the roof off of the place. And, uh, I mean, he would call us kids and four kids would instantly pee their pants on the spot just to find out dinner was ready, you know, but you never knew. You just, you just never knew. And, uh, but anyway, we'd bring these little weenie boys home to meet dad and uh, my dad is over. My dad's slightly over six foot tall, and he has one eyebrow he can raise six inches off of his on the right side here. Looks like Satan himself when he's standing over you. These little weenie boys would be there, and my dad would just grill them. Where are we going? What time are we going to be home? And what part of their anatomy he would remove if we were not returned in the virginal condition of which we left our house. And, uh, and subsequently, very hard to get a second date in my house. Uh, you know, guys would bring you home early, shake your hand at the door, thank you, but nobody is worth this. And, uh, you know, and growing up in this crazy house, it was, you know, and, and there was four of us kids, and, and all four of us will probably tell you a very different story. All four of us reacted in very different ways. Um, you know, it's funny when, when, when we get together, uh, just how different it was for all of us and the different paths that we all went on. My path was just to be the rule follower. You know, just follow the rules and regulations. Keep, keep your nose clean. Do exactly what is expected of you. Do it to the best of your ability. You know, and, and stay out of the sergeant's way and it's going to be okay. You know, the, my sister that was 13 months behind me was so rebellious and, uh, and she took a lot more beatings at the hand of my dad just because that was her reaction to it. You know, and my third, my, uh, my, the, the third child, my, my sister Kathy just was just this little kind of fantasy kid, just lived in fantasy land. You know, and my brother, who was eight years behind me, was protected by three girls, you know, and a mom who tried to protect him from this guy all the time, you know, and and, uh, and, and everybody is all paid a price, just kind of to show you where we all are, you know, well, I'm named Iowa, and, uh, and, uh, and, and my sister Lucy uh, isn't with us anymore. She was killed in an automobile accident as a result of her drinking and drug use, and, uh, and I miss her terribly today, and my, my sister Kathy lives up in Sacramento, with her very dysfunctional family, and um, and, I, and I talk with her on a weekly basis, and I love her unconditionally. And then my brother Larry, uh, at 18 years old, he had a, a brain tumor, and he's in a in a home for brain injured people. And uh, and my dad died at 55 from the disease of alcoholism. And uh, and my mom is uh, is, is married to a, another man, and she's doing pretty good. Uh, she pretty much maintains that she was unaffected by my dad's drinking, and uh, she pretty much thinks alcohol Al-Anon is a cult, and that I'm getting my brain washed here. But then, like I tell her, my brain needs washing, so I can't think of a better place to be. And uh, but she absolutely, you know, she's gone with me to a few meetings, and and, uh, and and the one thing that she says that she's always felt in the rooms of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous is she says she feels the love because it cannot be denied. I don't care how hard-hearted you are or, or how you think you've been affected or not. That's one thing I've always found in the rooms of A and Al-Anon is you can feel the love, and she has certainly felt that when she's been a guest here. But. Um, Anyway, uh, this was the house, this was our wacky thing, and I'm go- growing up being a rule follower, getting straight A's in school, and and having an alcoholic dad, you know, um, if you've ever had, you know, I, I got a lot of awards at school, you know, because I strive for that kind of stuff. I wasn't getting it at home or doing it, but boy, at school, I could just really, you know, I just could 
tell me what the rules are, tell me what I need to do. And, and I'd be getting all these certificates and awards and, uh, you know, and it got to the point where I could never really tell my parents this was happening because if you've ever had a drunk father show up at a school function, you know, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization is just not reserved uh, for the alcoholic. And so, you know, you just kind of quit telling your parents that. You quit bringing friends home, too. You know, because some days the Sarge could be charming and wonderful and other days he'd just rip you up and call you names and embarrass you. And, it, you know, and again, just typical behavior in an alcoholic home. But when I was um, 17 years old, I met my husband. I should have known there was something wrong with him because my dad liked him right away. But, uh, my dad never liked anybody right away, but he liked him right away. And that, that clue went right over my head. And, uh, and, we, and we double dated with this other couple, and I remember we went bowling, and I tried not to beat him at bowling, but it was impossible. And, um, and then we're going back uh, to his house, you know, and, and I'm 17 and he's 24. And uh, he's been married once before, you know, maybe clue number two to me that there's something wrong with this guy. And, and he's living with his mom and dad, you know, clue number three that there might be something weird here, but queen, queen. And, uh, and on the way back to, you know, this, this house with this other couple, he stops at a liquor store and he asks me what I'd like to drink. You know, and I tell him, I'm 17, this is the state of California. It's illegal to drink when you're 17 in the state of California because I know all the rules and regulations of every place I'm at. And, uh, you know... And he just, you know, looked at me and went into the liquor store and came out with a gallon of red mountain wine. You know, if nothing else to impress me, what he could consume in sheer volume alone. And, uh, and we went back to his house, and I did indeed end up having some of this wine. And what I remember is that, you know, I got a little lightheaded. And, uh, and what I remember the most about that uh, date is, is what a great time I had. You know, just how much fun he was. I have no doubt that he was absolutely, totally, you know, drunk and having a great time. But he was a fun guy. He just, when my dad drank, he was mean. He was nasty, and that's what I equated drinking to. You know, that if you had a problem with drinking, if it made you mean and nasty and made you hit people and do things like that. My husband just liked to get drunk and have fun. You know, and, and basically his M.O. was get drunk, have fun, pass out. I shared that one time, and he was sitting in the front row, and Hank Jay was sitting next to him, and Hank turned to Butch and said, Butch, I don't think that's too much to ask for. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, but it was more than I could give him. That was absolutely the truth. And, you know, and we dated for a couple of years, and every date I went on with Butch involved alcohol, absolutely positively. And I share this with you because later on, you know, the first day that I walked into Al-Anon, if you would have said, Larsine, did you know that Butch drank as much as he did, that he did drugs? You know, I would have absolutely denied that I knew that he drank as much as he did or whatever. And, again, I don't know why that is. I, again, how I'm affected by the disease of alcoholism, and I don't even know it. Because when the truth gets too hard for me to look at, I just pretend it isn't going on. I just look the other way because it's so important for me to be innocent victim in all this. I'm the good girl. I'm the good wife. He's the person with the problem. If you fix him, then I'm going to be just fine. But, you know, from the very beginning, he was right up front with the fact that he drank a lot and he did illegal drugs. Illegal drugs. This is huge for me. I am a rule and regulation person, you know, and stuff. I mean, I had a heck of a time with this, but it wasn't anything I didn't think I couldn't fix. And because uh, there is nothing that I cannot fix that is on the face of this earth. And don't ask me where that came from, too, because I have absolutely no idea. But anyway, you know, we dated for two years. We had a fun time. And, uh, and what ended up happening is that I got pregnant. And I share this with you because, again, later on when our lives got really, really bad behind the drinking, I was sure that, you know, this was God's way of punishing me because I'm the big rule and regulation person and I've broken the big rule and the big regulation. And this was the cross I was going to have to bear now for the rest of my life. 
You know, I was in Al-Anon a while before someone told me, you know, Larsine, if you screw around and you don't use any birth control, you might get pregnant. You know, just a fact of life. But boy, if you're like me and you're blaming God, isn't that one more way you don't have to take responsibility for what's going on in your life? If God's punishing you, what choice do you have? You know, it fit me like a glove, exactly what I want. Still get to be innocent victim because God's punishing me and there's not a darn thing I can do about it. You know, and again, when did I start taking all this on? When did my life start changing like this? I have absolutely no idea. When did I start becoming this person that I didn't want to be? It just started happening. How I'm affected by the disease of alcoholism and I'm not even the person that's drinking. And more importantly, I don't even know that it's happening to me. I don't even know that it's happening. But anyway, um, this was a huge deal for me, an absolutely huge deal for me, you know, that Butch and I had had to get married. And after we were married, occasionally I would have to take Butch to a work function with me. And all the way to the work function, I would tell him, now, if somebody asks you, you tell them we got married, blah, blah, blah. So it works out in the chronological order that I know you want it to work out in. You know, and I don't know how many parties you've been to, but I've yet to be to one yet where they go, Butch, it's nice to meet you. What year did you and Larsine get married? You know. <laughs> No one seems to think about us the way we think that they think about us, right, Scott? I mean, it's just uh, just, just the way, you know, that that goes. You know, and poor Butch, you know, we, we'll be married 29 years uh, next uh, April, and the poor guy has no idea. I mean, you know, he, when people go, how long have you been married? He kind of looks at me, you know? <laughs> it's okay, honey, you can tell him now, it's fine. <laughs> But you know the real, you know the the, the real story behind that is, it, it is is the big deal that I made that into the big deal that I made that into because if you take if if you take something and you and you keep it a secret, you know, and you and then it starts to become your dirty little secret, and then what started happening for me is this little boy started growing up and this little boy started having birthdays and his birthdays would just bring up just horrible feelings for me. Just absolutely horrible feelings. And here's this small little child that I am blaming for my horrible feelings. You know, and again, how we're affected by the disease of alcoholism and I don't even know it. I don't even know that I'm doing these things. You know, and, and today what I know is he's a wonderful, loving human being. How grateful I am to have him in my life. If it wasn't for Alan on, I wonder what it would be like today with him. You know, today I have a wonderful relationship with my oldest son. You know, and I'm so grateful for the day that he was born. You know, and it's a day of celebration, and it's a gift that you guys gave to me that I can never, ever repay you for. But anyway, we got married uh, a month after we had this child. So, uh, it, it, it again, it became a huge, huge deal for me. I remember when I was at my, my first AFG convention in Southern California, we have the Al-Anon Family Groups Convention, and we'd always do the deal where we go for the weekend, and we get two adjoining hotel rooms, and we cram as many Al-Anons in these two adjoining hotel rooms as we can. And uh, this is my very first AFG convention, and, and there was eight of us up in the room, and we're having the meeting after the meeting. And it seems to me that what I'm hearing everybody sharing, again, is their deepest, darkest secret. Now, one more time, I don't know if this is what they were sharing, but this is what I heard. So when it came around to my turn, I had shared with these, you know, seven other ladies how I had had to get, you know, um, uh, married because I was pregnant. And, uh, and it turns out eight, seven of them had to get married because they were pregnant, <laughs> you know. Well, we decided the eighth one, she was the sickest because she married an alcoholic and didn't have to, you know. And uh, <laughs> So, you know, you are as sick as your secrets in this room. So. But anyway, Bush and I got married a month after our son was born. So I wasn't pregnant when I got married, you know. And if you ask me, I told you I wasn't. And, uh, but at any rate, you figure it out. 
And, uh, and I remember, you know, up until this time, I'd never discussed with Butch his drinking or his drug use or any of that stuff. I'd never said one word about him, you know. And, and at this point, he was already a blackout drinker, already disappearing, gone for two weeks, three weeks at a whack. I knew all that stuff walking into the marriage. And, uh, and, uh, but, I, but the day after we were married, the day after we were married, I sat him in the kitchen chair. And I told him the rules and regulations of the marriage. And, um, and that from this point on, that once a month we would get a babysitter and we could go out and party. But th- that was it, because we had to work, we had to earn money, we had to buy a house, we have a child, we have responsibilities, obligations, and there's just rules and regulations about those kinds of things that just cannot be ignored. And he sat in the chair and I asked him if he understood and he did this. You know, which to me was, yes, he understood the rules and regulations of the marriage. What I know today, he was so flame and loaded, he was just going like this, you know, because, because this is what my husband always hears when I'm talking, blah, 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 and, uh, but I thought he knew, I thought he knew, and then now day two of our marriage, day two, the very second day, he doesn't come home all night long. You know, right away, a violator of rules and regulations. And, um, you know, and I watched my mom for years. I watched my mom for years do nothing. So I knew that silent treatment didn't work. I am proud, proud to stand before you today and tell you my husband begged for the silent treatment. He never got it, not one time. I was the, I was the Al-Anon whose mouth was attached to the doorknob, boy. Just the minute he came in the door, I was like a little Pekingese dog. Just... And just every four-letter combination word combo that I could come up with to let him know how angry I was. I never knew why I thought that I, for whatever reason, I got this, I call it information from nowhere. Lands here and becomes fact for me. But I just really thought, you know, that if I cussed in the right sequence of mothers and effers in the right order, you know, (laughs) that he would understand how upset I was. You know, have that spiritual awakening that I wanted him to have. You know, oh, Larsine, I'm sorry to make a wonderful woman like you cuss like that. I must stop drinking immediately. And uh, I don't know what I, I was just, for whatever reason. And, uh, but that was just absolutely the way that it was. I mean, you know, and like I said, he just wanted to lay down and pass out. If it wasn't for me, our house would have been a quiet place, but I just couldn't let it happen. I was so angry. And I mean, he'd be passing out, and I'd be picking him up from the shoulders and shaking him because I wasn't done. You know, he joked. He joked that part of the reason I talk as fast as I do is I only had so much time from when he came home to when he passed out to tell him everything it was that I had to tell him because, by God, he was going to hear it. And uh, there was no way I was going to let him skate like my mom let my dad skate. And, uh, you know, but even at this point, I'm not looking at the drinking. I'm really not. Because, see, I have been to probably hundreds, if not thousands, of Open Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in the time I've been in the program. And I have heard wonderful AA speakers, and they have described alcoholism. But I can sit in that chair till the cows come home, you know. And I am never really going to understand the compulsion to drink because that is not mine. That is not what I suffer from. And, uh, and because I did not suffer from that, I could not understand why my husband had to drink. I didn't see it. Because, see, I don't have to drink. And if I don't have to drink, you don't have to drink. And if you're drinking, it's because that's what you want to do. Maybe you don't love me because you're drinking at me. You know, and again, information from nowhere. No one told me this stuff. I thought it up all by myself. <laughs> and it lands in my little head and becomes fact for me. If the thought crosses my mind, for whatever reason, I believe it. You know, and I used to believe he was drinking at me. I used to believe he was having fun. My husband never came home looking like he was having fun. 
He always came home looking like he'd been run over by a Mack truck twice. But for whatever reason, I decided he was having fun. For whatever reason, I decided he was drinking at me. For whatever reason, I decided he didn't love me and our children enough to stop what he was doing and keep on doing it. And therefore, he must not love us because if it was me, I would stop. So why can't he do that? Again, information from nowhere that, that caused a lot of harm and damage to my family and how I'm affected by the disease of alcoholism and I, and I don't even know it. You know, and I want you to know that when Butch and I got married, Positively, the driving force behind that was the fact that, you know, that we had this child. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But I want you to know that, that the day that Butch and I got married, and we stood up in front of a minister, and we, and we did our vows, and we talked about loving and honoring and cherishing each other. And I believe with all my heart, you know, that we really wanted to do that. I believe that he loved me, and I know that I loved him. You know, but alcoholism doesn't love or cherish anybody. And it wasn't just Butch and Larsine that got married that day. It was the disease of alcoholism. You know, and alcoholism means to tear your family apart. It just absolutely means to rip it to shreds in any way, shape, or form that it can because that's the family disease of alcoholism. You know, and if you don't even know what's going on, it's even twice as deadly because it's going to get you. And uh, so anyway, Butch and I are off on this wonderful married married life. And, you know, and, and it was pretty much a war from day two. You know, after the Rules and Regulations Day, it went downhill from there. And, um, you know, and there was just, you know, just a couple things I'll tell you about. And... Um, you know, for the most part, he was easy going, but alcoholism is a progressive disease, and he got progressively worse. And, and one night, he came home, and to show you how drunk he was, he woke me up. And, um, <laughs> and he'd never done anything like that before. And, uh, and it startled me, and he was really gruff, this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personality they talk about in the big book, and he was like, yeah, you know, and give me some dinner, and, you know, and all this stuff. And he was really mean and rough, and, and I kind of scurried into the kitchen. This is like 2 o'clock in the morning, and, uh, but then I woke up, and I remembered who he was dealing with. And um, and I made this Mexican casserole that night that called for one jalapeno pepper, but I had a whole can of them in the refrigerator. So I just cut up every single one of those jalapeno peppers and just stuffed it in there. And he ate it. He's so drunk, his mouth must have been on flaming fire. You know, and then he did what I wanted him to do, and that was go in the bathroom and puke his brains out, you know. Because I don't know how you feel, but when my alcoholic throws up, I get a warm feeling that just, you know, lasts me for days. And... Uh, because this is what it's come to. You know, this is what it's come to. This is our first year of marriage, you know. And, 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 and my idea of fun is making my husband puke. You know, I mean, this is... And again, how I'm affected by the disease of alcoholism. And I'm not the person that's drinking and I don't even know it. I don't even know I'm retaliating. I don't even know I'm punishing. You know, because what ended up happening for me, especially in the beginning, was, you know, when you're with, when an alcoholic, you know, their wrongs are like this big. They're just like this big. You know, and, and in the beginning, you know, it was just, you know, my, my little stuff was this big, just little stuff, you know, and stuff. But it isn't very long before, boy, I get, on the, I get on the thing. You know, I just get right on the path, too. And my wrongs started growing even bigger than his. You know, and again, how does that happen? You know, I didn't have a conscious thought that I want to hurt him. Occasionally, I'd be yelling at him and calling him names, you know, after he's sobering up. And, and I could look in his eyes and see the pain. I could see how sorry he was that he didn't want to do those things, that he didn't want to spend our rent money, you know, that he didn't mean to do half of the stuff that he did, how sorry he was that he told me he was sorry. And I know when he looked at me and he told me he was, that he meant it with every fiber of his being. And I would have that little voice that would just say, Larsine, just leave him alone. Walk away and just let him be. But I couldn't do it. I could not do it. Because I've got that other voice in my head that's just louder and louder all the time. That information from nowhere that says, no, you've got to ride him and ride him hard. Don't let him get away with anything. 
you know, punish him, make him feel worse than what he does, because then maybe, you know, it's the aversion therapy thing that I was going for, I guess. You know, someone asked me, you know, did I ever do intervention? We had it every flame of night in my house. And, uh, you know, it didn't do anything. But, um, but again, you know, I don't even know that I'm being affected by the disease of alcoholism and that I'm turning into this person that I don't want to be. You know, when did the laughter go? You know, there was a while nothing was funny anymore. Nothing was absolutely funny for me. I got no joy out of life. When you wake up every day, you know, and, and, and my first thought is of him and what he's going to do and where he's going to go and is he going to go to work. You know, that's just how I'm affected by the disease of alcoholism and I don't even know it. I just don't even know it. And um, one time he was um, with his friends that I affectionately refer to as scum of the earth people. And, uh, and these were heavy-duty drug dealer people. And... Uh, and he, these heavy-duty drug pe- people called me and said uh, that if I didn't come get him, they were going to call the police. I love this. The drug dealers were going to call the cops. And uh, which shows you what a pig my husband is when he's drinking and using. He is absolutely a pig. And uh, and and there's a, there's a deal, you know. And I and I adhere to this, and I and I recommend you do too. You know, alcoholism is like wrestling with a pig. You know, don't do it because you both get dirty, and the pig likes it. And. Uh, <laughs> And that's what I did. I wrestled with alcoholism and got just as dirty. I got just as dirty. And uh, so anyway, when I got the call, you know, I did what I always did. I put on my Superman cape and uh, got in the car and went to go rescue my husband. There he is laying on the drug dealer's front yard. You know, they pushed him out of the house. He's that drunk and that obnoxious. They don't even want him in the house. And the drug dealers are peering out the curtains to make sure I've come to get him. And so anyway, he wanted to drive like he always does, but I just pushed him and he landed in the back seat of the car. And uh, I drive us home and I take our young son upstairs and put him in his crib. And I come down and my husband's made the fatal mistake of getting out of the car without my help. And he's fallen into the street, hit his head on the curb. Blood is gushing out all over the place. Now, I'd like to tell you how concerned I was for his well-being, but the real truth of the fact is, is that I didn't want the neighbors to see him laying on the gutter bleeding. Another embarrassing situation from Mr. Anonymity here. And so, uh, so I just grabbed him by the ankles, you know, and I'm trying to heave him up over the curb and lug him down, you know, the, the driveway and haul him into our apartment before anybody sees him. Now, why we call these people normies, I have not a flaming clue. But here is this guy driving by. I've got a guy by the ankles bleeding out of his head. The normal guy stops his car and says, are you having a problem? You know, these are the normal people in the world. And I said, yes, my husband's fallen and he can't get up. And, uh, and so he insisted on helping me and, uh, and he got him up. And so I'm on one side of Butch and he's on the other side of Butch. And we're taking him up to our apartment, our bedroom. We have a two-story uh, townhouse. And so I had to have him, you know, on rules and regulations, head injury needs to be in bed. So he's got to go up a whole flight of stairs, you know, to get him in this bed. And, uh, and now, of course, we, he and I are having the words, you know. And now Mr. Good Samaritan wants out of the situation. And we get to the top of the stairs and the guy is out of the house, gone like a bullet. You know, and so, and I get Butch in bed, and now the bed's spread, nice big puddle of blood. And I'm hysterical. I'm nuts. I call 911, and uh, and I'm so hysterical. They don't even know what's going on. They sent everything. They sent the paramedic, hook and ladder truck, police, everything Redondo Beach had at that at that time was at my house. They even got a hold of my mother. And so here I am in the bedroom with the baby, oh, holding the baby, patting the baby. Oh, God, my husband. Oh, my God. And the paramedics clean him up. He's got a little mini cut, needs about three or four stitches, and. Uh, and so they come to me and they, and they say, Mrs. Gantner, your husband says he injured himself because you pushed him down a flight of stairs. And, uh, 
And I reassure them that I did not do that. But I tell the police, if you'll prop him up, I'll be happy to push him down in front of the Redondo Beach Police Department. And they assured me that that wouldn't be necessary. And like I say, they clean him all up. He just needs these three stitches, but he's too drunk to be, you know, go to the hospital on his own. So they got the paramedics are taking him out, you know, and. You know, and I don't know how your neighborhood is, but 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, boy, the neighbors were out there hooking ladder truck, all the excitement going on at Larsine and Butch's house again. You know, Butch comes out on the gurney, oh, hiya, Frank, hiya, Joe, you know. <laughs> His usual friendly neighborhood guy self, and, you know, and I come out behind a newspaper like they won't know it's me, you know, because I was huge on anonymity at that point. And, uh, you know, and some in all that insanity, that's when I called the Council on Alcoholism. Don't even ask me why. I don't even know how I heard about it or whatever, but I looked in the phone book and I found this Council on Alcoholism and I called this number and I talked to this woman and no, and no matter what I told her was going on in my house and I just, she was a stranger so it's the first time I ever told anybody all the stuff that was going on in my house and all she would say was, I know, I know, I know, I know. And then she asked me for my address, and she asked me if she could send me some Al-Anon literature, and I'd never heard of Al-Anon. And she told me a little bit about what it was like, and I said, yes, she could. And, uh, and I remember the envelope coming, because it was a big brown envelope. And, uh, but I, to this day, I don't remember if I even opened it. I have absolutely no idea. For what I know that happened for me is I don't know how long it took, you know, a week for that envelope to get there, and a week later, you know, everything's different. To, you know, the rhinoceros goes back to being a coffee table. You know, and I just tossed it out. You know, we're just going to go back and pretend that everything's okay again and one more time try and fix it. And uh, and again, just the absolute insanity of the disease. And, uh, you know, towards the very end of my husband's drinking, I was standing toe-to-toe with him, rage just coming out of me. I was so angry. He just, one more time, so drunk and so loaded. One more time, we have no money. One more time, you know, the bill collectors are calling and I am beside myself and I am just screaming and ranting and raving at him. And by now, we've had a second child and, uh, and I became very conscious in all of this of the yelling and screaming of these two little boys who are at that time five and three years old. And they're both standing next to me and they're yanking on my jeans and I looked down at these two little boys and they're just sobbing, 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 begging their mom to please stop yelling at their dad. And I would like to tell you that I had a moment of clarity, but I absolutely positively did not. What I did was I just became enraged at those little boys. How dare they tell me to stop yelling at him? He's the reason our life is as crappy as it is. He's the reason that we have all the trouble going on in our life. And by the time I got done yelling at these two little boys, I look up at their drunken, loaded father walking out the front door, and I, the sober mother, say to the drunken father, where the hell do you think you're going? And the drunken dad turns to the sober mom and says, I'm leaving because we're upsetting the children. You know, I don't tell you this story because I'm proud of it. I tell you because this is where the disease of alcoholism took me, and I'm not even the person that's drinking, and I think I'm totally unaffected. It's not my problem, it's his problem. And again, how I've been affected by the disease of alcoholism and I'm not the person that's drinking. Anyway, you know, when Bush ended up getting sober, you know, I, I should tell you that before he did get sober, I did go to an Al-Anon meeting. Um, don't ask me what happened. I have no idea. But at any rate, I did know of um, uh, a girl I went to school with that her mom had gotten sober in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and that her father was going to Al-Anon. Her father's name was affectionately Crazy Jean because the guy was absolute lunatic. And um, so I called Crazy Jean and uh, asked him to take me to, uh, to an Al-Anon meeting and he did and, um, and it was a wonderful meeting. You know, it was nice people there but didn't have anything that I wanted. Wonderful literature on the table but they didn't have the piece of literature that I wanted was how to get them to stop drinking and do what you want them to do. 
That's the only thing that I was interested in. I petitioned my group. I still think we should get like a cover sheet just to have there to lure newcomers in. You know, after you come for 60 days, we'll give you page two. You know, that would have kept me coming for 60 days. I tell you, that would, that would have been the hook for me. But, um, but that's just what I wanted to know, you know. Instead, what they wanted to talk to me about was what I could do for me and what I could do for my children. And I was not interested in that. You know, and if they would have said to me, Larsine, do you want your life to be different? God, did I want my life to be different? Please tell me how my life can be different. Larsine, what are you willing to do about it? Nothing, because it ain't my problem. You fix him and I'll be okay. And again, how I'm affected by the disease of alcoholism. You know, on Butch's last drunk, on a scale of 1 to 10, I wouldn't even give that drunk a 5. You know why that's the one that got him sober? You know, that's his miracle and his deal. You know, I do believe with all my heart that on that day, God was working in my husband's life. I don't believe that God was working in my life, but I believe he was working in my husband's life. That night I called, and, uh, and they just started up this hospital program. They just started going, and, uh, and, they had, and they said that I could have my husband committed if he were drunk, but uh, that if after he sobered up, he didn't want to stay, he didn't have to, because they didn't want people in their program who didn't want to get sober. They wanted people in their program who wanted to get sober. They gave me the number of the doctor on call, and I thanked him, and I hung up. You know, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, the Redondo Beach police called me, and he'd been arrested for drunk driving, which is absolutely no big deal in our house. My husband gets arrested a lot for drunk driving. And um, and the next day I went to go pick him up, and there was just something very different about him. I can't even tell you what it was, but uh, usually he'd be really pretty pissy about having been arrested and angry and hostile, and he wasn't. He didn't say anything. And this is how I know that God was working in Butch's life, even though I don't think he was working in mine, is I didn't say anything. You know, and believe you me, it takes a power greater than anything you've seen in your life to keep my mouth shut. It's, it was like unbelievable. I'm even driving home going, how come I'm not saying bad words to him? You know, I mean, this is the colossal thing when he gets arrested. And I said nothing. And then we went truck hunting. I don't know if you've ever done that. I don't know if you do that in Iowa. Um, but uh, we went truck hunting. I think it should be an Al-Anon Olympic event myself. But, uh, <laughs> but we found his truck and then we went home and, uh, and he went upstairs for two days. And then he came down and he made that, you know, total understatement of the year. I think I have a problem with my drinking. As Scott said, um, highly intelligent people, these alcoholics. And, <laughs> and um, I'm like, duh. And uh, so I gave him the number of this doctor on call. And, and, and again, God working in Butch's life, not in mine, because I left the room. And that's not like me, because I am the arranger. I am the fixer. I am the one that takes care of all the details. And I just handed him the number, and I left the room. And I didn't stay to hear if he was making the phone call or, or what he was doing about it. And as I stand before you today, I believe with all my heart that God pushed me out of the way, because my husband asked God to get sober. And the first person to get pushed out of the way was Larsine, so that he could find that path. And uh, which went into the hospital there. First, he had to go into the psychiatric unit because he'd been doing Valium for like, I don't know, 20 years. You know, my husband would take 20, 30 Valium, 10 milligram a day. It was absolutely nothing for him. And uh, and so um, he had to detox from all the Valium and all the drugs and all the alcohol and all that stuff. And he's in the psychiatric unit of this hospital. And I remember as I'm leaving the big double doors, you know, the big lockdown doors. And, and I'm going out and Butch says, calls my name. You know, and I look back down the hallway and I turn around because I think, oh, he's changed his mind. He doesn't want to stay. I'm kind of glad he doesn't want to stay because I'm like, what are the neighbors going to say? My husband's in a psychiatric hospital. And so I walk back to him and he reached into his pocket and he handed me the Valium that he brought in case of emergency. And he'd never parted with the Valium in his life. I knew it was going to be different for him. I went home and I took that Valium because I was just... (laughs) 
I think I slept for 18 hours on one 10 milligram Valium. So, <laughs> but anyway, he's in the psychiatric hospital. Now you got, no, I got a husband in the psychiatric hospital. I got a son in kindergarten and one in preschool. Now to cheer Butch up, I would take him what the boys had made, you know, in kindergarten and preschool. But oh no no, he wanted to show me what he made in occupational therapy that day, you know. <laughs> So I'd bring it home, I'd show it to the boys. Look what Daddy did. He's sober now. We'd hang it on the refrigerator. Aren't we proud? Oh boy, this is going to be a fun ride. And, uh, and after he was there for a few weeks, they put him on the alcoholism side, you know, and, uh, you know, and he got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in the big book of AA and went to meetings and did all that kind of stuff. And I'm very, very proud to tell you that from that day to this, you know, he has uh, maintained his sobriety, and that was July the 21st, 1979. And, uh, and my gratitude to Alcoholics Anonymous knows absolutely no bounds because I know that my husband was on the verge of death was literally on the verge of death because you know and I, I'm not crying because he's sober and he's alive and well you know um, I'm not <laughs> you know when I, when, I, when I tear up about it I think about what should have happened is he should have died he should have died and that's what I was rooting for because I really wanted to be a widow desperately at that point and, uh, and I know what would have happened had that have happened you know because I was so angry and so hateful and so hurtful that what would have happened if my husband would have died that day is this hurtful angry resentful pissed off woman would be raising these two little boys and what do you think would have been the gift I would have been able to give to them what kind of people would they be today you know the disease of alcoholism goes on and on and on and on you know, and I am grateful that my husband is alive and well. Absolutely. You know, we have a terrific marriage and a wonderful life, and I love him with every fiber of my being. And I truly, truly, you know, my gratitude, like I say to Alcoholics Anonymous, knows absolutely no bounds. Because you took a guy that was broken and you put him back together again and let him be, you know, a father and a husband. And, uh, you know, and that's a gift. That is such a precious, precious, precious gift. It really is a miracle. And, uh, and I am truly, truly grateful for it. But, um, but in the beginning, it was a little rough. Because um, he's sober now, therefore wonderful. You know, I mean, I don't know what it is when you guys get an AA, but whoa, you know. Even at these things, Alcoholics Anonymous Convention with Al-Anon participation. You know, I'm, right away, there we are, yeah. You know, that's just kind of how it goes. And I always love that because, boy, when you guys are in jail, you want the melanin participation then, don't you, buddy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's call the melanins, boy. We want them over here now. So, um, but anyway, he's in AA and he's just loving it. And he's 12 steps and la, la, la. And, you know, in the beginning, I went with him to make sure, you know, the first six months that he heard everything he was supposed to hear because I'm very helpful, as you all know. But after six months, I was tired of AA, and I thought he should be too. I'm just like, God, you know, there's only 12 steps. How stupid are you? You know, Jesus. You know, let's move on. And, uh, but he made it clear to me that Alcoholics Anonymous was the most important thing in his life. I'm sure his sponsor said, go home and tell Larsine that. She will love it. And... Um, and that's how it was. He just kept going to AA. And then I started resenting AA. I really started resenting his program. I started resenting the fact that he was doing all the stuff he was supposed to be doing. And again, I have no idea where that came from, except that I was affected by the disease of alcoholism. And just going to open AA meetings with my husband did not fix what was wrong with me. You know, I am not alcoholic. 
you know, and I can sit in AA meetings and I hear wonderful stuff, you know, and a lot of my program is based on so many wonderful things I've heard in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's just a part. The part that I need to go to is the Al-Anon family groups part for the families of alcoholics because that's how I've been affected by the disease of alcoholism and that's where my recovery lies. And uh, But I didn't know it then. And so uh, so after a while, you know, Butch keeps going to AA and occasionally I'd go with him when it was an anniversary or whatever and I'd go to AA meetings and AA women would be there and they'd come up to me and are you Butch's wife? Yes, I am. We love him. He's so wonderful. (laughs) God, gag me with a friggin' spoon, please. I mean, it was just, you know, and that's, you know, and and chapter five, how it works. You get him sober and some AA broad steals him away from you. Yeah, that's it. You, you're the one that runs all the trouble and there he is off with that. Again, information from nowhere lands here, becomes fact for me. You know, because when you're not talking to anybody, you're only talking to yourself. Scary, scary neighborhood. My sponsor does not allow me to go there alone anymore. And, um, and again, you know, and I have no idea. All I know is that I'm angry and I don't know how to turn it off. You know, and my husband's doing the deal. You know, and he's not just working his program in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's bringing it home. You know, and he's being loving and he's being kind. And I always said, you know, when Butch goes to work, I'll be fine. When Butch gets sober, I'll be fine. When Butch is a good husband, I'm going to be just fine. When Butch is a good father, I'm going to be just fine. You know, and here he is almost two years into his sobriety, working, being as good a husband as he knows how to be, good as father as he knows how to be, working his program, going to meetings, doing everything he's supposed to be doing, and I'm not okay. It didn't fix me. His getting sober did not fix me. And no one was more surprised about that than me. You know, no one is more surprised that I hung my happiness on someone else. And I had no right to do that. I had no right to burden someone else, you know, with with that kind of obligation or responsibility. I denied him and I denied me. Everybody got hurt behind that one. And that's strictly my responsibility and that lies at my feet and no one else's. But what ended up happening for me was... um, after he was sober, um, almost two years, he decided he was going to go to a conference. Now, up until this point, I had nixed all conferences. You know, we're not spending money on that crap, blah, 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 you know, and stuff. And then after almost two years of sobriety, he didn't care if I thought it was appropriate or not. He was going to go, and it was going to be in Palm Springs. Good God, alcoholic women in bikinis. Oh, my God. You know, there was no way I could let him go and not watch him, you know. So, so I went with him just to keep him safe. And... Um, <laughs> And the first meeting he snookered me into was the family meeting, you know, and for me that's where, that's where the journey started for me because I sat in that meeting and they had an AA speaker, an Al-Anon speaker, and an Alateen speaker. None of the three were related, just three separate individual people who shared about alcoholism, the family disease, you know, and that's just kind of where I became this much willing. That's all it was, was just this much willing, but this much willing to do something different. So when I came home, I started going to Al-Anon, and I went to Al-Anon for all the right reasons. I didn't come to get an alcoholic sober. He already was. I didn't come to keep him sober. At that point, he'd already been sober almost two years. I came because I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just didn't want to be that way anymore. And uh, so I'm a rule and regulation person. I go to my first meeting, and they're like, you know, this is what we do. We read the literature. You get a sponsor. We work the steps. We go to meetings. Hallelujah, sign me up. Here I am. And, uh, you know, and we get a sponsor. You know, I I hear people, they're in Al-Anon for years, and they still don't have a sponsor because they're looking for somebody just like them. How stupid can you be? God, why would you want someone just like you? Then she knows your stuff. I mean, that was stupid. You know, to me, you need every advantage you can have. And so I picked a sponsor right away, the complete opposite of me. She was older than my mother, 
had never had sobriety in her home, had, was divorced from her alcoholic, did not have any children, had a thick Dutch accent, you could hardly understand a bloody word she said. And this, and this is who I picked to be my sponsor. And I remember the very first time I used her for, as a sponsor. My husband had a dead battery one morning, and he asked me to come down and jump it, and I did, and after I jumped it, he ran out of gas. And so he, this pissed him off for whatever reason, and he started yelling. I used to say he yelled at me. What I know is it made him angry, and he yelled, which is perfectly acceptable behavior. But I did what I always do when he yells. I yelled right back at him. He stormed off to work. I went upstairs, called my sponsor, and reported his behavior. And um, <laughs> told her exactly what had happened. And she, you know, said that when he got home that night that I owed him an amends. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, it was like, first of all, Jeannie's from Holland. She doesn't understand how we do things in America. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, she, didn't hear all, she didn't hear the crucial who started it, which I always think is so very important. And so I didn't want to tell her she was stupid, so I started to tell her the story again because she obviously wasn't listening the first time. And halfway through the second telling, she says, don't repeat to me what you just said. I heard what you said. And for what Larsine said to her husband, she owes him an amends. And another thing, don't you ever, ever call me again and start a conversation with Butch said or Butch did. I don't care what Butch did. I am Larsine's sponsor. I only care what care what Larsine said and did. And for what she said and did, she owes her husband amends. Good night. I'll see you at the meeting tonight. Good night. Click. End of conversation. We are done. You know. So I learned valuable lessons, valuable, valuable lessons that day. Never call your sponsor first thing in the morning. <laughs> you got all day long to think about what she told you to do. And I'm a rule and regulation person. I have no choice, you know. And I'm going to see her that night at the meeting. She's going to want to know if I followed her direction. So I got all day to think about that. And when my husband walked in the door that evening from work and he walked in the house, I told him I was sorry. I let his shitty attitude affect me the way that it had. And, uh, and that I would try and do better in the future. Now, I know that that's not the best amends that you can make. But what you got to know is that that moment I was this much willing to do something different. And I'd never told him I was sorry for nothing because it was always his fault. It was always his fault. And I see people kick themselves out of Al-Anon all the time because they're not getting it fast enough. Nowhere in our literature does it say anything about fast. You know, you come to meetings and you see some marvelous sharing. I mean, people have wonderful stuff going on in your life. Now, I don't know how you are, but I want it. I want it right now. You know, but what I know is that those people that are sharing these things have been working this program diligently for 10 years, for 15 years, for 20 years, for however long it has taken them to get to that place in their life. And I'm not going to get it walking in the door just wanting it. Just wanting it is not going to deliver it to me. As Scott so eloquently talked about, there's actions you've got to take. There's things that you have to do. I kind of liken it to, a, you know, go, go on hiking and, you, and, you, and you, you figure out, you know, somewhere down the road that you have drastically taken a wrong turn. You know, and that realization is a very good thing. But just knowing that you've taken a wrong turn and you're on the wrong path is not going to put you back to where you need to be. You need to turn around and go back to where you got misdirected in the first place. And however long that journey takes back, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is you've already paved the way. You know, the bad news is, is when we try to take the shortcuts. You know, when you get back off that path again, you've got to go back. you just got to go back. That's just how it is. That's just how the world works. And it's not bad going back. 
Because then going back, it's like, you know, doing your fourth and your fifth. You see the mistakes you made. You acknowledge them. And then you just leave them there. You don't have to take them with you anymore. But anyway, um, you know, I wanted it as fast as I could get it. And I see people beating themselves out. But for me, that was just the first step. This much willingness to do something different. Just that much. And that's all you need. That's all you need when you're here. Just this much willingness to just try and do it differently. And that's how my whole program has been over the 21 years. It's just this much at a time. This much at a time. Just going along the path as best I can. Um, uh, you know, our boys are grown now. Um, the oldest is 29. The youngest is 26. And, uh, and, you know, and they're both doing as far as I know fine. I have a lot of fears and worries about them. They've had their own difficulties. Our oldest boy was in AA for six months when he was 16 and uh, then decided that he was an alcoholic. And, you know, and I don't know that he is or he isn't. I really believe today that he isn't. He seems to be taking care of himself and doing what he needs to do. Our youngest boy has had a lot of problems and uh, a lot of drug and alcohol stuff going on in his life. And he's the kid that calls me and goes, well, you know, Mom, I'm not drinking hard liquor anymore. I'm just drinking wine. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I, and I want to tell him stuff, you know, but I... I I'm his mom and I love him, you know, and, and we learn a lot of things in Al-Anon, a lot of things in Al-Anon, and, uh, and there's a lot of words and a lot of sayings, unconditional love, release with love, you know, they're huge, they are huge, just do not take them for words, there is so much meaning behind what unconditional love means, it's not just a snappy little thing to say, it's a heck of a deal to have to do, but you can do it because you have examples sitting right next to you. You know, and just follow their example, and it's going to be okay. Um, I want—I just want to share this one story with you about um, uh, why I keep coming back, how important it is for me to keep coming back, what a dangerous person I am if I don't keep coming back. And uh, when I was about um, 15 years in Al-Anon, um, my husband and I had been at this conference this weekend, and it was—it was a wonderful conference. I mean, the speakers were just sensational. The workshops. Everything about this conference was unbelievable. And we both walk in the door on Sunday and you know and you know how you are when you've been to one like that. Just every you know, you're just serenity's coming out of every orifice of your body, you know, it's like, like just you know, it's just this wonderful everything is right with the world. We're so blessed, so much goodness, so much wonderfulness and and uh, and when we got back Sunday, my exercises I keep a treadmill in the garage and so I changed into my exercise clothes and I was gonna go walk on my treadmill and, and then our our youngest son, who at the time was uh, about 20 years old, uh, st- was still living with us, and, and at that point having a lot of problems in his life, and, and very, very fearful time for me. And, uh, and I go into my treadmill, and next to my treadmill is his weight bench, and I look on his weight bench, and I find a woman's driver's license. And this woman is 32 years old and lives in Glendora. And I immediately deduce in 10 seconds that she has been in the house over the weekend, had sex with my 20-year-old son, has two children and wants to marry him and call me mom. I mean, I am there right now. You know, Information from nowhere. Boom! It's just, uh, just right there. I run into the house, and then Butch is laying on the couch, his favorite form of exercise. And... Uh, and I, and, I, and I put the driver's license down on the coffee table and he just looks at it, you know, because he's got no imagination, nothing, nothing, this guy is nothing, <laughs> you know, and looks at me, you know, yeah, and so I tell him what I think has happened, you know, and, his, and he does what he's, so his eyes roll back in his head, you know, and it's just like, Larsine, you are nuts. Call your sponsor, go call Carol immediately. And so, and so I go and pick up the phone, I call Carol, and I tell her what I think happened, and she agrees with Butch, I am totally out of my wacky mind. And Carol rarely gives me direction, but that, that day she told me to shut up. 
shut up. And, uh, and she rarely says anything like that to me. And she says, and, and don't you dare say one thing to that kid when you see him about what crap you think went on in that house, what garbage you made up, and your fear that you want to push on this kid who already has enough problems going on in his life. Don't you dare say a word. And I follow direction. And as it turns out, I don't see my son for a couple of days because he's going to school and working a weird job and the, the hours that I work. And now it's Tuesday and he, and he walks into the kitchen while I'm cooking dinner. And heck, it's Tuesday. A million other terrible catastrophes have come and gone already. I forgot about the driver's license. And he walks in with the driver's license and he shows it to me and he says, Mom, what do you do when you find a driver's license? Now, I don't tell him what I do because that would not be a good example. I share this story with you because I am 15 years in Al-Anon. I'm going to conferences. I'm being sponsored. I sponsor people. I read the literature. I've been doing this for 15 years on a regular basis, but 15 seconds in my garage by myself, there's just trouble. There is trouble. And the difference between then and now is now I go in and I share what I'm thinking with someone else in the program who just lets me know who just lets me know, one more time, why do you want to take your fear and shove it on somebody else? I also got pointed out to me that it's just as easy to send good thoughts to the person that you're worried about as it is to send the scary ones. So if you're going to send thoughts, why don't they be good ones anyway? Why don't you just pray for them? You know, unconditional love, huge, huge meaning behind that. Someone also told me that fear stands for forgetting everything is all right. Most of the time, I'm in fear that I've just made up All this stuff lands here. Most of the time, how is it right this moment? It's perfectly fine. Everybody is doing what they need to be doing. You know, and and as far as I know, everybody's doing the very best that they know how to do. If I'm doing the very best that I know how to do, why shouldn't I give you that same credit? You know, I had to come to a room full of strangers to learn how to love my own family. You know, and how do I thank you guys for that? You know, and because of that, I have a wonderful relationship with those boys. They are, they are terrific, and they know there's not anything they can't come and tell their mom and dad. We don't always approve. You know, we don't always support. But, but they know that we love them unconditionally. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And the gift is, as I know, that they love me unconditionally, too. And that's a precious thing, you know. Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon took to a family that was just absolutely broken and splintered apart and put us back together again. And we are by no means on any stretch of the imagination the perfect family. We're all doing what you guys are trying to do. Just love on each other and take care of each other as God so intended us to do. You know, I believe with all my heart that God wants us all to be happy, joyous, and free. You know, and the only way I found that is in these rooms by holding on to your guys' hands and walking through my scary spots and letting me know that I'm being the best mom that I can be and that they're being the best kids that they can be. You know, and that's just what it's all about. Just let live and let live. Again, so much meaning behind the slogans and, and, and the things that we learn here. You know, I hope you have a great convention, but better more, I hope you take what you get here, take it with you, and take it home. Because taking this program home is the big deal. I mean, if you're not taking it home, you're really missing the ride. You are absolutely missing the ride. And, uh, and I can't say enough about that. It is just the most important thing. You know, and the only other one thing I want to say is, you know, for people that are living with um, active alcoholism, Hard duty. I know that that's really hard duty. But you are not a success in Al-Anon, you know, because your husband's sober or not sober. You know, you're, you're a success in this program if you're working it to the best of your ability. That's really where it comes down from. Happiness is an inside job. You know, if you want to be happy, you've got to work on your insides. Take that home to your family because they deserve it and so do you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.